be verse by verse with, <clears throat> uh, or if it's going to be more of a survey, and I'm, there might be times where we're, you know, have the plow deeper than other places, or we may do verse by verse. I just have to take it as it comes. I don't know. Job is a very unique book, and man, there's just so much truth here. And tonight, as we begin the book of Job, I'm just going to give a basic introduction, basic overview. And I'm going to give you a lens by which to interpret the book. I think that's so important. You know, if you just begin to like tear into something or read into it without really any background information, it's going to be a lot harder to make heads or tails out of it. So we'll try to get a lens for the study itself tonight. First of all, and I'm just going to be throwing basic facts about the book out to you, but, but first of all, the author is unknown. I mean, nobody knows who it is. We know... Uh, it was written by the inspiration of God. Some have guessed Moses and some have guessed uh, different prophets. And it really doesn't matter. If God wanted us to know, he would have told us. But one reason that we do know that Job is an inspired book, and I like to answer those questions. I mean, I accept it by faith. It made it into the canon. Uh, but the thing is, there's a couple of different New Testament writers that refer to Job, number one, as a real person. He's a historical figure. But number two, they quoted him as being authoritative. Uh, you see this from the Apostle Paul in Romans eleven thirty five and 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 19. You also see it from James in James 5 and verse 11 where he specifically referenced, uh, referenced the patience of Job. Uh, the setting of Job, the land of Uz, is really in the northern Arabian Peninsula And the timing of the life of Job, I think this is really important because when you're trying to understand a book of the Bible, you really have to put yourself in the mind of the people involved because you have to ask yourself the question, what knowledge did Job have? What was he dealing with? What resources did he have? What did he know about God and all those things? And Job, he had to have lived... Uh, during the time of the patriarchs, either right before or during the same time as Abraham. There's a lot of clues that let us know this is true. First of all, Job lived almost 200 years, and only the people during the time of the patriarchs did that. I mean, by the time you get to Exodus, you don't really see that anymore. Um, And, you know, Abraham himself lived 175. Wealth was measured in livestock instead of gold. That was true at the time of the patriarchs. Uh, Job acted as the priest of his family in the same way that Abraham did. Uh, Job makes reference to Adam. He also makes reference to the flood, but he, na- he makes no mention of Abraham, Israel, or the law. And so it had to have been between the time of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 to around the time of Abraham in that frame somewhere. Uh, there's no way that you can have a book that's 42 chapters long and the vast majority of it being a theological conversation, and the law and the Abrahamic covenant and Israel, none of that stuff ever comes up. It had to have been prior to that time. And so physically, uh, most scholars believe that the book of Job was the first book of the Bible to be physically written. Now, obviously, the accounts in early Genesis are older than Job. I mean, Job doesn't come before creation. But as far as the physical writing, this is the first book to be written. Really, really old stuff here. And um, when you look at the theme of Job, this is something to keep in mind. 
The theme of Job really is God's sovereignty over the affairs of men. And most specifically, God's sovereign, uh, sovereignty in our suffering. And I find it notable that the Hebrew rendering of the name of Job means, where is the Heavenly Father? And certainly, in the book of Job, was that not the question he was ultimately asking, is where is God? You ever been in a trial before and you ask, where is God? I find that amazing. Um, but as far as the genre goes, and this is something, too, that when you're studying the Bible, you really need to pay attention to. When you're reading a certain book, you, you ask yourself, what genre is this? And, you know, there's plenty of resources out there that will answer those questions. But, I mean, you've got historical narrative. You've got the poetical books. You've got apocalyptic literature like Revelation. You know, there's all kinds of different ones. But the genre of Job, the, the first part... And really, to, to an extent, the whole book is somewhat historical narrative because these were real people, these were real events, these things really happened, so it's historical. But as far as the style goes, especially when you get into the conversation between Job and his friends, it's really poetical. And this becomes really important in the way that you interpret it because, you know, I've had people ask me before, do you take the Bible literally? And my answer is always, I take the Bible as literally as it's meant to be taken in its context. And the, the reason I say that is because, because this was prior to the law, because it was prior to the Abrahamic covenant, it's prior to all these resources that the Jews would have had and certainly even we have today, uh, there were certain things that they just didn't know about God. And so they're, they're having this theological conversation and what you're going to find is that Job's three friends, they were just flat out wrong. They said so many wrong things about God, it's not even funny. And what a lot of the cults do is they'll take certain snippets of what Job's friends said and they take it literally. That's where uh, Job's witnesses believe that unless, you know, if you don't make it into the kingdom, then you just, when you die, that's just it. There's no eternal hell, there's no damnation. You just take an eternal dirt nap. Your life is over and it's done. And they, they take a verse out of context from the book of Job about the body perishing and, man, where is he? We're going to see that. And so you can't take it that literally. You have to understand where they're coming from. These are, you know, as far as uh, Job's three friends, these are men that really were saying some incredibly wrong things about God. And so you have to remember that when you read it. And so that's important. But as we get into the introduction tonight, we're going to deal with the prologue. And we're just going to walk through some things tonight. There is, there is so much doctrine in the first three chapters of Job that it really is staggering. I could spend probably a year in the first three chapters. I mean, it's unbelievable, the doctrine here. But I'll just try to pull out, I think, the most helpful things and not get bogged down too long in any one place. But let's read the text tonight, and then we'll come back and pull some things out. We'll just deal with the first 12 verses. It says, there was a man in the land of us whose name was Job. That man was perfect and upright, one that feared God and skewed evil. And there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. His substance also was 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels and 500 yoke of oxen and 500 she-asses and a very great household. So this man was the greatest of all the men of the east. And his sons went and feasted in their houses, every one in his day. And sent and called for their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And it was so when the days of their feasting were gone about that Job sent and sanctified them. 
and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Hast not thou made a hedge about him and about his house, and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land. But put forth thine hand now, and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. Thank you for this day. God, just thank you uh, for the people that you've brought here for such a time as this. I know that, God, at some point in time we all face burdens. There's burdens represented in this room tonight. And, God, I just pray that through this study that we would just take comfort in your character, in your love and compassion for your children. And, Lord, knowing that you know everything, that you're all-powerful, that you're all-loving, that you're omniscient, you're omnipresent. And, God, even when we don't have the answers to the difficult questions, I pray that we could take comfort in you. And Lord, I, I just ask that you into me a sin and self and fill me your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name I pray these things. Amen. <clears throat> so tonight in this introduction to Job, we're just going to look at the prologue. And there's really four things that I want to focus on as we get started tonight. Uh, but the first thing we need to really pay attention to is the person of Job. Who was he? What was his character like? And When you look at the first five verses, I mean, just really focus on this. It says, there was a man in the land of us whose name was Job. That man was perfect. Now, perfect does not mean sinlessly perfect. In fact, we're going to find later in the book that Job admits he's a sinner. He was not sinlessly perfect. Nobody has ever gotten there. We know that. Uh, We study that in depth. But uh, it means spiritually mature, um, complete. It says he was upright, one that feared God. He eschewed he evil. There were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. His substance was also 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 she-asses in a very great household. So this man was the greatest of all the men of the east. And his sons went and feasted in their houses, every one his day, and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And it was so when the days of their feasting were gone about that Job sent and sanctified them rose up early in the morning, offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. Now, when we look at the person of Job here, it's, it's very important to understand this. I mean, if there was ever a good, godly man, Job was it. He was wealthy, hardworking, successful. He was an honest businessman. He loved his family. He feared and loved God. His children seemed to love each other. They seemed to enjoy great fellowship one with another. I mean, when you look at Job, how could you not respect Job? I mean, he was the best of the best. And when we read these opening verses, like I can't, what I'm about to say, I cannot emphasize this enough. I cannot overstate this. But the inspired writer... 
under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, at the very onset, he answers a question before it even gets asked. Because this question is going to be brought up over and over and over again. And the question is this. What did Job do to deserve all of this? Holy Spirit said absolutely nothing. Because that is going to be the accusation that's raised from his three friends. And you're going to hear this term over and over and over again. And I've used it several times in the past. I used it this morning. And that is retribution theology. And it's horrible. It's in our churches today. We're going to deal with that. Uh, But they brought this up. The, The thought process was that God would never do this to a righteous man. If you were right with God, if there weren't some hidden sin in your life, this would never happen to you. What did you do to to deserve this, Job? And the answer is nothing. So from now on, all the way from chapter 1 to the end of chapter 42, whenever that issue is raised, for all of the answers that we don't have in the book of Job, for all the answers that we don't have about exactly why God chose to put him through those trials, one thing we do have an answer to, it wasn't because... He was being punished for his sin. That is so important to understand because I know a lot of people that maybe they have gotten into a trial. I'm talking about good Christian people. They get into a trial, their world falls apart. Uh, They're dealing with horrible pain and heartbreak and tragedy. And what's the first thing that they ask themselves? What have I done wrong? What have I done to deserve this? And now I, I do think it's important that we do have some times in our life, even when things are going good, that we have some self-examination before God where we really spend some time in the Word and prayer and we ask God to reveal in any wicked way in us. That ought to be a, a regular practice in the life of a child of God. But what doesn't need to be a regular practice is us constantly beating ourselves up over nothing. You know, I've, I've said this in the past, and it's the, I think it's the best illustration that I can think of to prove this point. But as flawed of a father as I am, and I am, I'm imperfect, I make mistakes. But as flawed as a father as I am, I don't know that my kids have ever been disciplined that they didn't know why they were being disciplined. Now, if I, as a flawed human father, have enough sense to tell my kids that, don't you know that God has enough sense to let us know? We don't have to beat ourselves up about that. You, you, if you're saved, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. Uh, you have that discernment. He is going to reveal truth to you. And it's amazing how God has a way of convicting us of things. Uh, before, during, and after. You don't have to guess about that stuff. You don't have to beat yourself up. God doesn't play pick with stuff like that. And so once you get past that initial stage of examination, then you need to let it go and take peace in the fact that it's not for something you did wrong. You don't, have to, you don't have to walk across hot coals. You don't have to spend the night on a bed of nails. You, you don't have to inflict any punishment upon yourself. You don't have to do any of that. But I feel like there's a lot of people that have that mentality. Maybe even they would never say it out loud, but they, they think that way. Listen, Job was singled out, not because of what he had done wrong, but rather because of what he would do right. I I just finished a book by Stephen Lawson, and I thought the title title was kind of catchy, and it was about Job, and it was uh, the title was, When All Hell Breaks Loose, You Might Just Be Doing Something Right. 
And um, so we need to get past that. You'll ne- Listen, you will never have any peace and joy. You can't even get to level two in your trials. If you can't get past the mentality of I must have done something wrong, that certainly was not true of Job. And so we need to understand that. Uh, the author here is laying a foundation that says, for all the things that we don't know about Job's trials, they did not come as a result or punishment for his sin from God. We need to nail that down. The Holy Spirit lays this out in the first five verses of this book. But then the second thing that we see is the proposition of God. Look at verse 6. It says, Now there was a day when the sons of God... Now, you know, some have said that's probably angelic beings or heavenly hosts, and that's probably true. Uh, But the, the scene is definitely in heaven here. And it says, The sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord from going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered... Man, this statement is amazing. Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in all the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil. Now, as we mentioned even in our Revelation study, Satan, even today, he has access to heaven. He has access to God. And we're going to talk more about him in a minute. But what cannot be missed here is that God was the one that brought Job up to Satan. Satan didn't go to God and say, hey, I want to I destroy your servant Job. That's not what happened. God was the one that brought Job up to Satan. And first of all, I think this is amazing because the Lord was bragging on the character and devotion of Job. Wouldn't it be amazing if God could say the same thing about us. I couldn't think of a better compliment or a more honorable thing. I couldn't think of anything else in this world that I would want more than God to be able to talk about me like that. That ought to be a desire of our heart to to serve God in such a way that He could say such things about us. What might He say about our lives even today? What could God say about you? But what's so important about this statement is that from this point on, whatever one may conclude about Satan's involvement in Job's trial, God was ultimately in control. God instigated this thing. Yes, I guess you could say physically Satan was the one that struck Job and, and killed his family and <clears throat> you know, stole his livestock and all the things he lost. You could, I mean, you could say the devil did that and you would be right by saying that. But you ultimately have to understand that God was in control of it. God was the one that instigated it. He's the one that ordained this. He's the one that brought it on. He's the one that organized it. And so he's in control of it. As we're going to see, that's a very comforting truth. Some people say that why would would God want to do that? Um, But I want want to save that for my last point tonight. I do want to go ahead and get in point three quickly. Uh, number three, I want to look at the, the provocation of Satan. I want, to get, I want to go back to verse 6 and pull some things out as we go. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Satan came also among them. The Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down it. Just, just a point of doctrine here. It's amazing how just in one verse... 
the Bible can make something so clear. You know, there's a lot of people that think Satan's in hell right now, and this totally proves he's not. He says, I've been going to and fro in the earth, walking back to and fro in the earth, and I couldn't help but think about uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, where it says that the Satan walks about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. That's exactly what he's doing. And so that's a, a good point of doctrine just to, to point out. But in verse 8 it says, And Satan, uh, Lord, the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? And Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Has not thou made a hedge about him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land. But put forth thine hand now, and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. Now, what I love about this is on one hand, God is clearly pleased with the life of Job. And on the other side of that coin, Satan is clearly irritated by the life of Job. Wouldn't it be wonderful to have such a testimony and such a life that we both please God and irritate the devil at the same time? Um, Satan says, now, this is another thing we cannot miss here. Satan says two very important things in this text that kind of give us a glimpse behind the curtain here. Uh, The first thing is, he lets us know about God's hand of protection and provision in our lives. I don't think he meant to do... You know, Satan was inadvertently praising God in this text. Uh, I don't, um, he obviously didn't mean to, but he was. He was praising God. We say, how was he doing that? Look at verse 10. Now, now Satan is talking about the things that God was doing in the life of Job. He says, hast thou not made a hedge about him and about his house... And about all that he hath on every side, thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land. (laughs) I mean, when I read this, it is literally Satan praising God. You say, how do you come to that conclusion? Because what this means for us is, and certainly meant it for Job and it means it for us too, is that every night that you slept safely in your bed, that was God. Every day when you got up in the morning, that was God. Every honest dollar that ever made its way into your hand, every provision that the Lord, that has ever been given to you, that was God. Every good thing that has ever happened in your life, that was God. Every person that came into your life at just the right time that you needed, that was God. Every good and every perfect gift comes from God. You know, I I think a lot of times that we don't even have, well, in fact, I know, we don't even have the knowledge to thank God like we should. We don't even have the knowledge to praise God like we should. We have no clue, and only heaven will tell how many things that God has protected us from, that He's kept us from, that He's shielded us from, how many different ways perhaps He provided for us and we didn't even know what all went into it. Satan tells us this right here in plain English, and he should know. He should know. And so what a, what a great way to praise the Lord inadvertently. And, and you know, one, one thing about Job's trials that I think we clearly need to recognize, and this will give you some praise even in your deepest, darkest trials. When Satan says, verse 11, he says, But put forth thine hand now, and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee 
to thy face. In other words, Job's trials, man, this is so good. Job's trials came as a result of God taking his hand off of him. And so when you feel the greatest pain that you've ever felt in your life, the thing that just breaks your heart, you know what it is? It is the absence of a good thing. We only hurt because we lose good things. If Job had nothing good to lose, there would have never been any trial in the first place. When we, when we grieve over our loved ones that have died, the reason we grieve is because it is the, the absence of a good thing. And so even in our trials, it's proof of the goodness of God because we're grieving the absence of a good thing. I mean, if we, if we didn't have anything to grieve, shows us we never had anything to lose. And so isn't that true? So even in our greatest pain, I think this truth really hit home with me when I was speaking at the graveside of my grandmother. And I thought, I mean, it just hit me while I was praying, man. I got to crying. I got thinking about, you know, even, even the grief and... And even the things that we feel in those most hopeless moments, that is proof of the goodness of God. And in her life, I was thinking specifically about my grandmother. Man, she lived to be 92 years old. I mean, she lived through the Great Depression, the after effects of the Great Depression. She lost two husbands. She survived cancer twice before it finally took her. She had a heart condition that she had a 100% blockage in her arteries and never even had to have surgery because her body had made arteries that went around the blockage. Like, she was a freak of nature. And, I mean, just until the very last year of her life was in perfect health. And, man, she knew the Lord. And, I mean, my grandmother, man, she just loved the Lord. And I thought, you know, what... I mean, even at a graveside, even in a situation like that, to be able to praise God for all the things He's done. Man, death has no hold. Death has no sting. I mean, even the worst trials we can endure, they're the, they're the loss of good things. You know, um, one of the hardest things that, that I deal with on a personal level about this thing with Leah, and if I'm not real careful, I'll make an idol out of this. And if you're not careful, you will too. And I, I saw it in a picture. You know, they say a picture is worth a thousand words. Leah subscribes to these NDPH support groups online. And there's this lady who struggles with the same type of illness, disease that Leah has. She's had a headache for like six years, but she's an artist. She had painted a picture of a lady that was sitting in a cemetery. And she was curled up and she had her hands in her knees. And the headstone next to her said, R.I.P. to my old life. And I thought, wow, that's how I feel. That's how she feels. And the thing about it is we, we think about times where we could go do things and we, we could take our kids certain places and she could go a day without hurting and, you know, all these things that we can't do now that we could do then. But the flip side of that is that we had 12 years where we could do those things, where we could worship in church together, where we could do all these things. And how could I not give God praise for those things? So the reason that we hurt so bad is because we do long for those things again. But even that gives praise to God because we had those things when we didn't deserve it.
And I guarantee if he ever gave it back to us, son, I would never be the same. I would never look at life the same way again. And uh, I, I, just pray he gives, I, I just pray he gives us that chance. And so, man, even, even when we lose things, it's a praise and a testimony to the goodness of God. And so we can't, I mean, even Satan, he don't even know it. But he's telling us things about God that we ought to give him praise for. Uh, if you're blessed today, it's because the hand of God is on you. And if you ever suffer a great trial and tragedy, it'll be because God takes his hand off of you. And you, I hate to break the news to you, but you've never done anything in your life to deserve the blessing of God and to not deserve any trials that are brought on by the hand of God. So Satan lets us know these things. So that's one really important thing Satan says here. The second really important thing that we have to recognize here is that he is questioning the very character and motives of Job. He, he claims that Job cares nothing about God and only about what God can do for him. Satan says to God's face, he don't care about you. He just cares about what you can do for him. See all those livestock, that big house and all that family and land and all that's what he He don't care about you. That's all he cares about. That's a pretty serious accusation there. Look at verse 9. Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for not? Does he, does he love you? Does he fear you for nothing? Verse 11, put forth your hand now. Touch all that he hath and he will curse thee to thy face. Now, that leads us to ask some very serious questions about our own heart and our own life. I mean, this is, this is the deepest level of Christianity that I can come up with. And that is, could Satan say the same thing about us and be right? What about us? Would we, listen, would we still love God if everything we had was stripped away? Would we still worship Him? What a, what a deep question. Or do we just serve God because we want Him to do stuff for us? Now, this really drives a dagger into the heart of health and wealth prosperity. You know, God pretty much says, no, He loves me. He loves me for me. And you can, I'll take my hand off and you do what you want to, but He loves me for me. That's the argument that they're having here. What, what, a, what an amazing thing if God could say that about us. Listen, I can take everything that man's got. I can take his health. I can take his kids. I can take his wealth. And he's still going to worship and praise me. That's the deepest level of Christianity there is. I'll be honest, I don't know if I'm there yet. I'd hate to try him on that one. But that's the, the argument that they're having. i tell you what this lets me know too when I read Satan's statement here. It lets us know that Satan is perfectly aware of the fact that there are an awful lot of people out there who serve God for prosperity's sake. Look at the biggest churches in this, so-called churches in this country. Joel Osteen, you know, their so-called church, they meet in the old stadium for the Houston Astros. He can fill up a baseball, a professional baseball stadium every week with the nonsense he's spewing out about how God wants to make every day a Friday about how he wants to give you your best life now. And, you know, you look at like Creflo Dollar and 
Kenneth Copeland and, you know, you sow this seed of a thousand and God's going to give you 10,000 or whatever nonsense they come up with for that particular day. Satan, he's all about that. He's totally cool with that. He loves that kind of religion where people love not the giver, but the gifts. They couldn't care a thing about God. They, listen, there are a lot of people out there that would be perfectly content living their entire life if they had health and wealth and prosperity and never had the presence of God one day in their life. There would be a lot of people that would be perfectly happy for all eternity with the mansions and streets of gold and the tree of life and the lack of sickness and all the wonderful things that come with heaven. They would be content with all that for all eternity even if Jesus isn't there. I tell you, for a child of God, that ain't heaven. If Jesus ain't there, it ain't heaven. That's one of the things that really crossed up the ex-Mormon bishop that I talked to the other day. I said, man, I said, y'all believe in levels of heaven and God's not even there. I said, are you telling me that heaven can be heaven without God? I had no answer for that. It shows you where their heart's at. And so... Um, God help us. Let, a, let it never be said of us that we just love God because we want Him to do stuff for us. But that we love God because of who He is. He's the creator of the universe. He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to come to this earth and die for our sin. The, cre the creator dying by the hands of His own creatures. The greatest love story ever told, and it's true. I could never outdo that. We see the provocation of Satan. But lastly, as we come in for a landing, I want to look at the providence of God. Look at verse 12. The Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. Now, I'll be honest with you. Verse 12 to me personally has been the most comforting verse in all the Bible. It's not even close. There's some good ones. I mean, there's some really good comforting verses in the Psalms. There's some comforting verses in Second Peter and, and Philippians. And, you know, there's, you, there's comfort in many places in the Bible. But for me personally, this is the most comforting verse in all the Bible. You say, why is that, Brandon? How could that possibly bring you any comfort? Because it shows us that Satan can't do anything to us without the permission of God. Not one thing. Evil, darkness, nothing can touch us outside of the permission of God. And, and that even comes to the actions of humans. Now listen, I'm not saying that people are robots, or certainly not. People do what they want to, and typically they want to do bad things. But even the evil that people would do unto you, they can't touch you. There is nothing that happens to a child of God outside of the permission and the decree of God. You say, well, how is that comforting? Well, it means there's no such thing as purposeless evil. There's no such thing. I mean, even if you think about what all Job lost, his children were killed. His he lost his livestock. He lost, eventually we're going to see he lost his health. I mean, he lost so many things. And we're going to see, I think, you know, we've heard the story of Job so much that we just have kind of gotten numb to it. 
But when you really read in detail what he went through, he was in torment every day. And it was all by the permission of God. I mean, literally, we see specific instructions here. God says, look, all he has is in your power. Don't touch his life. In fact, at this point, it's even more than that. Satan wasn't allowed to touch his life, and he wasn't allowed to touch his bodily health. That comes later. And so, what a, what a blessing. I go to bed at night knowing that as hard as this trial has been, that this is by the, the providence and the decree of God. It, it wasn't just that Leah randomly went to bed three years ago, and she's had a headache ever since, and that Man, we just randomly ended up in Utah. And man, she's just going through all this. And as a family, we're going through all this just random. No, it's God. God is in control of that. That is the greatest comfort that you and I could ever know. That God's in control. This omniscient, all-powerful, all-loving God has a plan for our suffering. There is no greater pillow than that that we can lay down and find rest. Satan can't even blow his nose without God's permission. As Martin Luther said, Satan is God's devil. He can't do anything outside of the permission of God. Now, if I lived in a world where I didn't know that, I might think that Satan is in control of this whole thing, or, or maybe this is just random circumstances living in a fallen world, and it just, you know, life happens. And what if, what if we lived in a world where our suffering was random. What if we lived in a world where Satan really could get one over on God? You know, God would just really like to help us. Man, that Satan, he's just powerful. I couldn't live in a world like that. But a world where my, my heavenly Father is in control, I, I can live with that. Bring, hey, bring it. I, I mean, I'm not bragging about that. I, I mean, there's a lot of things in our own flesh we couldn't handle, but by the grace of God, we can. He's in control of that. Um, I think it was George Whitfield said that the child of God is invincible until their work on earth is done. I like that. Um, this definitely gives us great comfort, but it also leaves us with a big question. Why would God bring suffering into the lives of his children? That is the million-dollar question, isn't it? Well, in 42 chapters, I just spoiler alert, in 42 chapters, that question never gets answered. There'll be times in our life where that question never gets answered. Uh, but I believe it will be answered in eternity. Um, if we're not careful, let me say this and I'm done. If we're not careful, we will make an idol out of purpose. When it comes to our trials, we need to be looking for God. You know, and I, listen, I, I'm preaching to myself tonight when I'm about to say this. But in this trial that we're in... There have been times where I've made an idol out of purpose. I'm going to tell you why purpose can be an idol to us and when it becomes dangerous. Because I felt like, God, if you just let me see the purpose in this, I could endure it. If you just let me see the purpose, I could be happy. But here's the problem. If we knew what God knows, there'd be no need for faith. We wouldn't have to live by faith. If I knew the purpose, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have to trust Him. I wouldn't have to live by faith. But also, purpose gives us a built-in way to lean on our own understanding. He commands us not to do that. 
Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Um, our purpose gives us a way to do that. But purpose also gives a certain vindication to our pain. Don't we want, we want vindication, don't we? I mean, we want to know. It's almost like we barter with God sometimes. I don't know if you do that. I, I think I do it probably not out loud, but maybe I think this stuff. But it's like, okay, God, if, if I'm going to have to go through this, <laughs> I want it to be worth it, you know? I, I want this investment of suffering to be worth it at the end. I want my pain to be vindicated. Do we not feel that way? We do, don't we? But friends, that's not living by faith either. But I, I, can, I can assure you of this. It, it may not happen in this life, and in many cases it probably won't. But there is nothing that heaven won't fix. There is no wrong that won't be made right. There is no questions that will not have an answer. And so in our trials, let's not be, let's not be suffering. Let's not be causing ourselves further stress by just focusing on the purpose and all that goes with this. Man, if we could just see him. And by the time we get to the end of Job, we're going to see that Job never got the answers to these questions. We don't know why he lost all that. I mean, yeah, he gets double what he had, but why did he lose all what he had in the first place? We don't know. He never gets those answers, but he does see God. Well, if we could just see God as big as Job saw him, all those things will go away. So our prayer, God, if you don't want to show me the answer, show me you. Give me your grace and mercy and peace in a way that's bigger than all the trial and purpose and suffering and everything else. If you don't get anything else, understand that God is in control of our suffering. We ought to find comfort in that if we trust Him. Would you stand as she comes?